Well, happy Father's Day, you dads. I had a cool thing happen um, last week. It was my birthday. They keep happening faster and faster as I, I get older. I don't quite uh, know what to think about that, and I'm in complete denial, but it happened. But anyways, the cool thing is we had a granddaughter, our fifth grandchild, born on my birthday last week, and little Rylan. So I think we got a picture here. There we are out in Southern California uh, where she is. Her dad is full-time with Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And um, we are excited to welcome a new member to our large, already large, and now becoming chaotic uh, family. Now, because it's Father's Day, I want to talk to you dads. Actually, I want to talk to everybody. But I want to especially talk to you dads about a male issue. Actually, it's an issue that all of us struggle with. We all have this going on inside of us. Uh, the difficulty is that uh, 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 the bigger these areas are, the bigger these deals are, the bigger the problem they pose. It's why the wedding is easy and marriage is so difficult. Uh, they're why we tend to blame our problems on others. It's her fault. And are so defensive when people try to point out our problems. It's why we as men uh, are so self-righteous, easily angered, legends in our own minds, right? And yet we fail to see the, the sin that stains almost everything we touch. It's why we tend to think of us, male and female, as decent people rather than disobedient people. It's why we tend to view ourselves as more law keepers than law breakers. I haven't murdered. So you fathers, you men, what I'm talking about are our blind spots. And you have them and I have them. And today I want to especially focus on the most lethal category of them all, and that is our spiritual blind spots. Now what is a blind spot? A blind spot is an area where your view is obstructed, <laughs> where you can't see the whole picture, all of reality. It's a car that's behind you and, and to your side. It's an area in your life. And, and spiritually, it's a character, it's a heart, it's a, a worship disorder. As Augustine has said, it's a disordered love. And the problem is you don't see them. Most people around you do, but you don't. In the Old Testament, Cain's blind spot was his inability to control his emotions, his rejection, his pride. And so he convinced himself it was okay to commit history's first murder. Miriam was the sister of Moses. Her blind spot was envy. She envied her brother's status in Israel. So she began to, a campaign to badmouth Moses. And she did. And to demonstrate uh, 
uh, the corruption of her heart and how seriously God takes our blind spots, God afflicted her with leprosy. Achan's blind spot was his greed. David's is narcissism. Now sometimes uh, we aren't completely blind to our blind spots. We know that uh, somewhere down there there's a shark uh, lurking in the water. We tend to ignore it. We tend to deny it. But most of the time when it comes to our blind spots, the, the problem is we're blind to them. And then they jump up and grab us. Now this brings us to one of the saddest, I mean saddest chapters in the Old Testament. Jeremiah chapter 7. So grab your Bibles, turn on your Bibles. There's Bibles in the racks in front of you. It's page 760 or so in those uh, Bibles. And turn with me in the Old Testament to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah comes right after Isaiah. And what's going on in this chapter is that God, through the prophet Jeremiah, is exposing Israel's blind spots. So we're going to read several different sections of this uh, chapter, but let's begin with the first 15 verses. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house, that would be the temple in Jerusalem, and there, there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place that is in Israel, in Jerusalem. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really, now notice really, if you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this land, in the land I gave to your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words, and they're worthless. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal, and follow other gods you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which bears my name, and say, we are safe? Safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I've been watching, declares the Lord. God is always, always watching. Go now to the place in Shiloh, where I first made a dwelling for my name, and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. While you were doing all these things, declares the Lord, I spoke to you again and again, but you did not listen. I called to you, but you did not answer. Therefore, what I did to Shiloh, I will now do to the house that bears my name, the temple you trust in the place I gave to you and your ancestors. I will thrust you from my presence just as I did all your fellow Israelites, the people of Ephraim. Now let's start with the history. 
these verses, what's called a, the uh, temple sermon, take place in Jerusalem. But it ends with a conversation about Shiloh. Shiloh was about 18 miles uh, north of Jerusalem. Shiloh was Israel's first capital. It was where God placed the tabernacle for hundreds of years before the temple, which is mentioned here, was ever constructed, ever built. Now, you can go to Shiloh today. I've been there. It's in the West Bank. It's an amazing archaeological tell. Let me show you a, a couple pictures either Rhonda took or I took. Um, this is the tell of Shiloh, and if you look back and you see that kind of square area, that's the outskirts of the tabernacle. The ruins are 3,000 years old. And it's an incredibly sobering place. Because as we read here, Shiloh was destroyed because of Israel's wickedness. And now in Jeremiah chapter 7, God is saying, I'm about to do the same thing with Jerusalem. Israel is racing to the bottom. Are we as a culture? Maybe. But here, Israel is just a few years away from destruction, from exile. And God is pleading with Israel through Jeremiah to repent, and Israel won't. You will have nothing to do with it. Now, what I want to do this morning is I want to do three things. I want to talk about Israel's blind spots, two of them. I want to talk about how they develop, how they developed in Israel, how they develop in our lives, and how they can be overcome. And for those of you less familiar with Christianity or unsure about Christianity, I want you to note that this chapter is a scathing indictment not of secular people, irreligious people, but of religious people. Now, ultimately, we're all religious because we're all worshipers. If we're not worshiping God, then we uh, worship ourselves, our cause, our politics, our jobs, our, our money, our family, our spouses, uh, whatever. But what I want you to understand is these were religious people. Religion was important to them. However, the God of the Bible has absolutely no patience for empty religion. So he places Jeremiah at one of the, the, the seven uh, beautiful gates to the temple, lead into the temple. And he instructs, God instructs Jeremiah to call Israel to repentance. And he does it by pointing out a couple of blind spots. Let me mention the first one. Blind spot number one, major issue for Israel is that Israel trusted in a building, not God, and didn't know the difference. Israel's last good king, Josiah, has just been killed in battle. 
Now Israel, the politics are changing constantly. Israel is now under a a quasi-Egyptian rule and doesn't like it. Major superpowers are massing to the north. Assyria is in decline. Babylon is ascending. Israel is threatened and getting squeezed on all sides. And these Israelites are scared to death. They're uncertain, they're desperate. That's why look at verse 10. They try to convince themselves they're safe by saying we are safe, we are safe. But deep down they know they're not. And what's happening is, because of this anxiety, this political turmoil, Israel has blindly, we're talking about blind spots, replaced her faith in God with faith in the temple. Now, we got to line this out a little because the temple, the Old Testament temple, was good. It was a good thing. But what these Jews are doing is treating the temple like it's a good luck charm. So they're chanting, this is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple. This is the temple. But the temple was a good thing. It was the center and the symbol of God's presence in Israel. But somehow these Jews thought that because of the Old Testament promises about God indwelling the temple, that gave them the freedom to live however they wanted and worship whatever gods they wanted. So the temple had become this superstitious thing, a good luck charm. And Israel is guilty of believing what we call a half-truth. Parenthetically, believing half-truths throughout the history of the church is what causes most heresy. So the half-truth, the truth part of this, is that the temple is a good thing. But then what Israel did, and this is where they moved into heresy, is added to that, that that, therefore we can do whatever we want, believe whatever we want. It, It just doesn't matter. So this is the blind spot of thinking you're okay with God when you're not okay with God because you have dictated the terms of your relationship with God. Now, none of us ever do that, right? I mean, we do this all the time. And what Israel has done is that has reduced her relationship with God to empty externalism. No internal devotion. No love of God from the heart. It's religious observance without moral obedience that flows from the heart. And God hates it. Now let's talk about today. Today our culture in the West has no vocabulary for sin. We don't know how to talk about it. We don't know what words to use because we don't believe in it. Now we know something's wrong. We know something's there. But we don't have the vocabulary. So we avoid it. The Bible, however, is different. The Bible has a rich vocabulary for sin and describes sin in a variety of ways. 
Uh, sometimes it's falling short. Sometimes it's transgressing, overstepping uh, the line. Sometimes it's breaking God's law. And there's another way that the Bible talks about sin that, frankly, we don't uh, talk about enough. And that is that according to the Bible, sin is also breaking God's heart. Now let me illustrate that. One of the worst experiences in life is the shattering destruction of divorce. The wedding is easy, marriage is difficult. The rejection, the betrayal, the loss of love, uh, the, the disappearance of intimacy is awful. Divorce is awful. And how we feel about divorce in the midst of an unwanted divorce is exactly how God feels about sin. It breaks his heart. That's why over and over in the Bible, the Bible uses the language of romance and marriage to describe our relationship with God. Telling us that even the, uh, the best marriages, the healthiest marriages, the most vibrant, intimate, joyful marriages pale in comparison to the love, the intimacy, the security we can enjoy in a relationship with God. So God gave Israel the temple to demonstrate that he is our lover, that he wants to be present in our lives. That he longs for us to be in his arms. And if we're not, that means we're in the arms of someone or something else, just like Israel. Sin, my point is, sin breaks God's heart. What is sin? It's breaking the heart of God. Now I say this because if you're putting your trust, your confidence, uh, your, your, your faith in your church attendance, yeah, I go once a month, or your church membership, or your good works, or your personal devotion, or, or your prayer, or the fact that you were raised in a Christian home, or you, you put your hope, your faith, your confidence in, in your kid's behavior, or um, a, a variety of things, instead of cultivating the love relationship with God from the heart and pursuing this deep emotional soul-to-soul -soul connection with God that is precisely why romance and marriage is used to describe our relationship with God, so if you're doing this and, and not pursuing this love relationship, I want to say to you, dads, hear me, you're blind. And your blind spot is that you think you can be religious and distant from God and disobedient to God at the same time. And it's Israel. Jeremiah chapter 7. And look what the results are. Look at the consequences. Look at verse 6. Uh, you can use these to test yourself. There's a complete loss of compassion for the under-resourced around you. 
a, a loss of a commitment to, to justice for the immigrants, the refugees, the orphans, the widows. There was no justice in Israel. Then if you bounce to verses 9, 10, and 11, it results in immorality and idolatry, a functional abandonment of the Ten Commandments. That's the point of verse 9. Look at verse 11. Jeremiah says in verse 11, uh, the temple, this worship center of Israel, has become a robber's den. Does that sound familiar? Jesus picks up this vivid metaphor in the Gospels and uses it to describe the temple in first century Israel. And, and, and the metaphor means that what's going on is these Jews are robbing, stealing, raping, and killing all week long and then somehow think it's okay when they show up at the temple. It reminds me of the old Godfather movies. And so Israel's blind spot is confidence in an it, not confidence in God. There's a second one here. I'm only going to mention two. Israel um, had abandoned worship in the home and didn't think it was a big deal. Israel had forfeited God's plan for the family and turned the home in, into an idol factory. Now before I show you this, uh, in, in these verses in chapter 7, uh, let me raise the question, what is God's plan for the family? In terms of parenting, it's that God gives you children, these precious, adorable children, that you might make them disciples so that you can launch them to reach the nations. Now we see this in a variety of ways. Look at this metaphor, Psalm 127, verse 4. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Now that's a battle metaphor for children. This is a military metaphor. It describes the role of parents. What is our role? Uh, as parents, well, we understand our children are arrows. And we are, are, are to pull our children back on the bowstring of faith. So we raise them. Uh, today, this side of the cross, in, in a Jesus-first, gospel-centered family, where we talk about the Word, where we refer to the Word, where we do family devotions, where we uh, share prayer requests. Uh, and we do come at that in a variety of different ways. But in our family, in this family, Jesus is at the center. So he's part of the vocabulary. And we pull these children back on this bowstring after year after year after year. And then we launch them into the heart of the enemy. It's why we say during our family dedications here that parents, your number one responsibility is to disciple your children to love Jesus. After that, nothing else really matters. Now, obviously, these beautiful, adorable arrows are bent. 
and some are more bent than others. And so we pray, we pray, we pray like crazy for our kids. Because we know that salvation is of the Lord. Now with that as a little context, let's pick it up in verse 17. Look what was going on in the home in Israel. Do you not see what they are doing in the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood. The fathers light the fire. The women knead the dough and make cakes to offer to the queen of heaven, a pagan goddess, an idol. They pour out drink offerings to other gods to arouse my anger. But am I the one they are provoking, declares the Lord? Are they not rather harming themselves to their own shame? Now, every family has family worship. Every family. Every family in the history of the earth has family worship. The question is, what are you worshiping? For some families, it's sports. Others, it's academics. Others, it's art. Sometimes, it's a mix. Sometimes, families worship appearance or or, or money or the lake or the mountains or, or, or the beach. And that's never innocuous. It always leads to something. So if you skip down in this chapter to chapter 31, unbelievably and tragically, we're told that this idolatry led to child sacrifice in Israel just outside the walls of Jerusalem in the southern valley, Valley of Hinnom. And what we see here is the capacity of the human heart for evil is enormous. But do you see the point? The the point is Israel had trouble in Jerusalem because Israel had trouble in the home. And families weren't worshiping God together. Oh, the families went to the temple, but their hearts, because of their homes, were far from God. Uh, So you moms, you dads, um, this Father's Day, I am not saying dads start a seminary in your homes. I mean, we certainly didn't do that. But I am saying if the TV is the center of your home and it's on all the time, or if it's computer games or it's your kids' activity, And you never pray together. You you never say, hey, I want to talk to you about what God's been saying to me today. If you're not um, thinking about how you can reach your neighbors for Jesus Christ together, I mean as a family, or how you can extend justice to the needy people around you as a family, then what's going to happen statistically is your children are going to grow up and they're going to leave the faith. And dads, it's because you've been blind. And you've abandoned worshiping Jesus in your home. And it's Israel all over again. 
Do not, do not sacrifice your children on the altar of anything, anything. Now let me go on and ask this important question, well, how did they get there? How did these blind spots develop? Uh, two ways. First of all, they develop when we lose our appetite for the truth, the truth of God's Word. Uh, when we stop listening to the Word. We saw that in the section we read, but if you jump to verse 24, we see that Israel did not listen. In 27, Israel will not listen. And in verse 28, at the end of verse 28, we are told truth had perished in Israel. Total truth decay. Nothing, nothing, nothing reveals truth like the Bible. The Bible is the world's most accurate mirror. The Bible reveals the real you, fathers. Mothers, so cling to the Bible, study the Bible, grab verses, that, and they don't have to be long, uh, memorize the Bible. And, and when you get in your small groups, man, man go to town on, on this. Uh, remember, Israel, uh, <coughs> Israel couldn't see her blind spots because she wouldn't listen to Jeremiah. So in your small group, maybe here's what this could look like. Uh, maybe the women go in one room and the, the, the guys, if you're in a couple's group, go, in, uh, go into a, a, another. And, and you talk about your blind spots. You, you look at these trusted people that are in your group and say, hey, what do you see in my life? And then you pray and over time you hold each other accountable and you, and you revisit this. And you let other people be Jeremiah to you. And you welcome Jeremiah's into your life. Isn't that why we get together in our groups? Isn't that the nature of small groups? Now let me go on because there's a second way blind spots develop. And that is if we capitulate to rather than control our feelings and our inclinations. Look at the second half of verse 24. I've been thinking about this verse and thinking about this. The second half of verse 24. Instead, they followed the stubborn inclinations of their evil hearts. And that's the West today and in contrast to what our culture says the Bible says it's always always a recipe for heartache and disaster now let me fast forward 2600 years I want you to see how the Apostle Paul comments on this same subject in Titus 2 Notice this, he says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people, and it teaches us to say, not yes, but no, to ungodliness and worldly passions. 
and to live this self-controlled life. Paul is teaching that if saying no, men, hear me, you men, if saying no isn't a part of your regular experience in life, then you are blind. You have blind spots. And what's going to happen is you're going to go backwards, not forward spiritually. Why? Why is this? Because our hearts are fallen, corrupted, sinful. Jeremiah will say this just a few, 10 chapters later in chapter 17, where he'll say the heart is deceitful above everything else in life. The heart is more deceitful than anything in life. And so if you don't guard your heart, if you don't curb your heart, if you don't say no to your inclinations and your, your feelings, stubborn and evil is the vocabulary of Jeremiah. And if you aren't speaking truth into your heart instead of listening to your heart, then you will never bring your life in submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and your family will not stand a chance and it starts with you dads. And we'll be, we'll be Israel all over again. And our hearts will be idle factories. And by the way, and I'm saying this parenthetically, this is why God brings trials into our lives. Because trials expose our idols. So for example, a woman's husband dies. And as a result, she walks away from the church, walks away from the faith, is furious at God, wants nothing to do with God. What has that trial revealed? The trial has revealed that her husband, not God, is her God. You and I don't like him. We don't want him. But the beautiful thing about God's plan is he uses trials to reveal your blind spots. Now, finally, I've got to land this thing. Uh, this is such a huge deal for us. So the question is, how do we overcome our blind spots if we can't see them? Uh, how, how does that happen? Well, there's a couple things here. First of all, we're back to listening. We listen to God's word. You listen to God speak to you through his word. You're a Bible reader. The Bible matters to you. You allow other Jeremiahs into your life and you ask them to hit you hard. Uh, so you listen first and second man you grieve you mourn and you confess sin look at the picture in verse 29 in verse 29 we have this call to Israel to cut everyone's hair cut your hair get rid of your hair God says we know it's not to Jeremiah it's to all of Israel and what is that well that is a call to mourn God is calling all of Jerusalem to mourn and to grieve her sin. So we listen to God, we hear God speak to us, and then when God speaks to us and reveals a blind spot, man, we mourn it. We carry it with us. And the third and finally, we look to Jesus. Now let's go back to this Titus 2 uh, 
passage. I want you to see verse 11. Notice how the verse begins. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation. That is a reference to Jesus Christ and his life, his death, his resurrection. It's a reference, reference rather, to the gospel, to the work of Jesus Christ and dying on the cross in our place for our sins. So Paul is saying that the key to us as men, you women too, the key to us saying no to these inclinations, these feelings, this, these ungodly and worldly uh, passions is looking to Jesus. It's taking the eyes off ourselves and looking to Jesus. Now, what does that mean? That means when you understand that you are so sinful that Jesus Christ had to die and so loved that he was glad to die, and you understand that because of that love, Jesus intentionally left the perfection of heaven and allowed himself to be bloodied, battered, and bruised, and rejected, and tortured, and uh, stripped naked, and crucified for you. And he died a death that he didn't deserve to offer you a forgiveness and a righteousness that, that you don't deserve. And when that grabs your heart, this grace of God that has appeared, it melts it, it changes it. And the Holy Spirit uses the depth of Jesus Christ's suffering as you lock on it to enable you to face and overcome these dark areas in your life. Why? Because you know they're covered by the blood. You know they've been redeemed. So you're not ashamed. You're not insecure. And you live in the light. Jesus is the hope of the world. Jesus is who enables us to overcome that which is so hard that we want to deny it, we want to push it away, and we remain blind to it. So if you have never, ever done so, come to Jesus. Come to him now. Let's pray. Father, every single one of us has blinders. Would you give us the grace to hear your word and to listen? Would you give us the grace to mourn, to care about it so deeply that we grieve? And would you give us the grace to look to your son who forgives and restores and redeems. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen.